Hello, Alex from Scrimba here. You are listening to a recording of one of our weekly fireside chats here at Scrimba. In a nutshell, we sit around an imaginary campfire and have real conversations about learning to code and how to land your first junior developer job. We bring out the imaginary kindling every Tuesday, and while we hope you enjoy this recording, we would much prefer to see you there live, because when you attend live, you get to participate in the chat and ask us questions. To learn more about the Fireside Chat, such as how to join, what exciting topics are upcoming, and what specific time the event happens in your time zone, head to scrimba.com forward slash fireside. On behalf of myself, my wonderful co-host Leanne from Scrimba, and everybody else on the Scrimba team, and our occasional guests here in the Fireside Chat, please enjoy this episode, and remember to subscribe so that you see future episodes as well as support the show. Let's get into it. Hey, what's happening, everybody? And hey, Jermaine, good to see you again, mate. Hey, Alex, how are you? Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you well. I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you there for a second. You were logged in under a different name. I think we've yeah, like uncovered yeah. your gaming you know alter ego. for my gaming community. So oh, yeah? You actually got my gamer tag? No way, man. What kind of games do you play? Uh, I love, I'm, I'm an RPG type of guy. I, I'm in the, the Witcher, the Witcher 3 communities, you know, Mass Effect communities. I'm also in a couple of book discussion communities for A Song of Ice and Fire. Real, real, real George R.R. R. Martin fan. And I love talking theories with people that are, are from, like, that are reading the books. So, yeah, you, you can find me on a lot of discords um, under my gamer tag. But today, everyone gets the real me. Good to have you back here again, Jermaine. It's always awesome when you join us for these things here at Scrimba. I just want to quickly welcome everybody to another Fireside Chat. Well, I hope actually, Jermaine, we can turn this into a bit of an AMA and people can ask you as senior recruiter their questions about resumes, recruiting, hiring processes. We'll have to see what comes up. Of course, I have a few questions of my own I'd love to ask. But before we sort of jump right into it, could you please introduce yourself to anybody who hasn't already encountered you here at Scrimba? Uh, my name is Jermaine Murray. I, I, online, you can find me as Jermaine Jupiter. I'm a recruiter and a career coach. Um, I help people break into new industries and um, I have a, I have a huge focus and appreciation from people from um, a diversity, equity and inclusion standpoint. I myself uh, come from a marginalized background. Uh, I am a, sorry, I said background, but I meant background. I am a black man. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's good to have advocates in the space and just kind of, you know, democratizing the knowledge uh, behind tech careers and kind of taking the mystery mystery out of it. Um, I'm somebody that's not from a non-technical background, but I love tech and I love innovation. Um, so I did everything I could to find where my niche would be in tech. Um, and I was delightfully surprised to find that there are so many options and so many paths in tech that I am confident in saying that there is an interest, a path and a niche for everybody in this industry. And part of that is just identifying a, you know, what your best skills are, what your transferable skills are, B, putting that onto paper like a resume and C, getting that resume or getting yourself in front of the right people, networking, to then identify more paths, get more information, but at the end of the day, make a decision that's best for you, your life and your future. I love that so much. And I think one of the big differentiators when it comes to candidates is like, 
whether or not they have a computer science degree, but you're saying that there's a path for most people. Just out of interest, like, what do you think is the like importance of a computer science degree nowadays? Is it is it helpful? Is it not that helpful? I think it's I think it's it's overrated in a sense. I'm a huge Marvel guy, and right now we're talking they're talking about multiple paths and multiple universes. I think a computer science degree is parallel to like a boot camp degree. At the end of the day, it just comes down to what you're able to do, how fast, how quick you're able to learn, and just how dedicated and passionate you are to your craft. I've passed over people from like Ivy League institutions for people that are self-taught because the drive is there, their creativity is there. You see it in their work, you see it in their portfolio, you see uh, you see it on how they're approaching a problem and the ideas that they're coming up with. At the end of the day, yes, you know, the knowledge you might get from an institution may be more standardized, but it always comes down to the person and how they're able to execute on that knowledge. I'm a firm, firm, firm believer that education is not a guarantee or, or a real signifier of intelligence. And I love tech because a lot of tech's culture is a counterculture to traditional means and paths, right? Uh, you have people that are building things that are flipping industries and ideas on top of their head. And it's it started out as an industry for outcasts and people that didn't really know what they wanted to do in life, but it gave an avenue to create. And I say that because whether you start out as a computer science, whether you start out as a boot camper, whether you start out as self-taught, you can all end up at the same place based on your experience, your ability to perform, and your ability to meet and exceed the expectations of the people you work with and the people that are in rooms that you don't work with, but that hear your name. I think that's so empowering, man. Thank you for sharing that because most new developers at some point kind of wonder, you know, am I on the right path? Should I have gone a different route? Should I have maybe gone to university or something? But it's always in your control is what you're saying. You can demonstrate your knowledge. You can build exciting projects, follow your passions and find success at the same time. I think you're spot on as well. Like, I mean, I'm still not ready for a doctor to operate on me without a degree or a dentist for that matter. But when it comes to coding, you can almost prove and demonstrate not just your knowledge, but your passion without a piece of paper. What are some of the ways that you see people kind of sharing their, you know, maybe maybe instead of talking about it like sharing, maybe I should describe it as like proving. Like what are some ways that new developers can prove their skill to an employer without a degree? I think for a new developer, the best thing that you want to do is that you want to have an advocate within the company that speaks on your behalf and validates your experience to others, right? And there are different points in time where you can make, you can build that rapport with someone, you can build that relationship. The traditional route is, and this kind of is kind of like a catch-22, but bear with me here. The traditional route is to get invited to an interview and just bank on learning about the people involved in the interview process and building an actual rapport with them, right? Um, that's the first way to like win somebody over to you. But in the scenario where like you're self-taught, you're trying to figure out like how you can even get someone's attention. I always like acknowledging and talking to these these software leaders on like what kind of messaging catches their attention. Mm-hmm. And they always say to me, you know, Jermaine, people that are really intentional with why they're reaching out to me are the people that I answer and I and I respect and I build that rapport and relationship with because they took the time to intentionally seek me out and not to waste my time. And what does that mean? 
Well, for a lot of software developers, a lot of uh, early career developers, people just starting out, I always say use your portfolio, your projects as an excuse to talk to people that are more senior than you. Ask them, be a little braggadocious so that you kind of challenge that professional competitive side with them. Hey, I just built up this really cool project. I think it's the bee's knees. You know, I built it using X, Y, and Z languages. And honestly, trying to find ways I could improve it. I've kind of hit a bit of ceiling, need some fresh eyes. What's the first thing that you would improve? Do you mind checking out my app or my project? You know, taking a look at it and just tell me just one thing that you would have done differently or that you would have improved on. And you'd be surprised at how, A, how much people will respond with that type of messaging because it's direct, it's intentional. I know why you're reaching out to me, right? I, I have a specific set of skills and you want some honest feedback for something that you've already done. I don't have to conceptualize a scenario to understand your problem. It's all there right in front of me. All I have to do is check it out and give you a response. And that response is what you need to kind of build that rapport. And the second thing is you also have to realize that building rapport is not a short-term game. It's a long-term one. You can't expect to get the invite or the referral off of the first conversation. Bring your project to somebody, get their feedback on it, tell them that you're going to implement those improvements and come back to them. But don't just do it to one person, do it to multiple people. It could be at the same company, it could be at different companies. But the idea is, is that you are, A, give them a low pressure question to ask. You're not asking them to make a referral. You're not asking them to go to bat for you. You're just asking for their technical opinion. And B, it puts you on the radar of so many different people because they kind of have an investment now in how this project turns out and whether or not you took their advice to heart. Now, the most impressive thing is for you to come back a couple weeks or maybe a couple months later and be like, hey, I improved X, Y, and Z, like just like you said. Also added this in from additional feedback. What do you think of it now? But it's that frequency of getting in touch with them, that rapport, that genuine conversation that's going to give you the advantage. And I always say, like, when you're looking to connect with people, there are three different three tiers of people you can you can connect with. You can connect with your mentors, people that you know have more experience than you, that can give you advice, that can critique you from a top, from a bird's eye view. Then you have your peers, people that are in the same boat as you. You know, think of them as people that are maybe in the same boot camp, people that are in the Scrimba community. These are people that are building similar platforms and similar tools as you. These are people that you can either collaborate with or be competitive with. But you always want to keep in touch and see what the other person is doing so they can inspire you to do more. And then finally, you have your mentees. These are people that are that don't have the same amount of experience as you and don't discredit your experience. The fact that you've gone through on a learning journey is impressive enough. There are people that are terrified to do what you're doing right now just by being in this room. So they're going to look to you for advice on like, yo, how did you how did you get started? How did you find Scrimba? How did you join? Right. These are this is these are nuggets that you can give to people. And the reason why it's important to give to those people is because everybody has different paths and different connections. You never know when somebody will end up. You never know what insight they can provide for you. You never know what introduction they can make for you. In a nutshell, that's the kind of three-tier approach that you want to have it with. And that's a pretty long-winded message. I, I hope that stuck. No, man, if you heard me musing myself or typing, I wasn't like theorizing about Game of Thrones in another channel. I was like <laughs> frantically taking notes because you're dropping some great stuff here. And I think if I was to like 
try and summarize it, it's not to just sort of be by yourself coding every day and only thinking about your code, but it's to kind of reach out a little bit and create opportunities and luck for yourself by, yes, sometimes pushing your comfort zone. But one more thing I think I I extracted from that is that it can take some time for these relationships to come full circle or for you to see the benefits. And so even if you don't quite feel today, like you're going to start applying for jobs anytime soon, maybe that's weeks, maybe that's months, depending on you, you can still start to kind of make progress in this respect. And you've given us some very like tactical, actionable ideas to start doing that, um, which are, and I think it's such a great idea for if you have some code you're excited about, you know, put the job search aside, I think it'd be super exciting to get someone more experienced, like opinion on your code. And if that can lead to them then being a friend to you, or if they see your enthusiasm and say, whoa, this is a lot of like good energy. This person's putting in the hard work. They've got the skills. They, they kind of want to sort of uh, capitalize on it themselves and maybe refer you or at least point you in the right direction. But it sounds to me like a lot of it has to do with sort of um, not just waiting to get lucky, but kind of creating your own luck by pushing your comfort zone a little bit and, and sort of reaching out to people and showing them the hard work you've been doing. Exactly, exactly. Because the, the hardest thing for anybody at this stage is proving yourself. It's this horrible catch-22 where people don't want to give you a shot unless there's something that validates them taking, giving you that shot, i.e. experience. But if you're a newbie, how the hell am I supposed to get experience if you're not taking a shot at me, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's that's when we have to look at the, pro the problem more on a microscopic level and like, instead of big picturing it by trying to get in through the front door, you know, divide and conquer. Try to just win over one person in that company. If you can win over one person, that's all you need to give you the edge to get in through the front door. And then from there, the more one person helps you out and the more they like you, the more they're willing to help you out. I'll give you guys a bit of a background. I graduated from university with a broadcast journalism degree. Tech was nowhere near my peripheral like i was trying to be on the radio and you know through a series of unfortunate events i i wasn't able to crack the industry long term so i went for a couple of different sales jobs and eventually i eventually decided you know what recruitment is the path that i want to go on in order to get into tech and i remember i interviewed at this place and the interview didn't go well but one of the interviewers i made a connection with because we grew up in the same neighborhood at different times Right. And we just had that that non-work related connection of being from the same neighborhood. We were talking about the same food spots that we would go and visit. I told him about a time that I got beat up. <laughs> I got beat up at the mall because I was I said the wrong thing to the wrong person. He was like, yep. Yep. That's like a rite of passage for that neighborhood. And by the end of it, he said to me very candidly, he's like, yo, Jermaine, I really like you, but you're not going to get the job here because my manager doesn't like you. But. I have a friend that works at another recruitment firm that I want to refer you to and kind of, you know, put in a good word and hope that he can refer you. And I was like, thank you. And that led to me getting my first tech recruitment job, something completely unrelated to the industry, just because I was able to build a genuine connection with somebody. And when you're just starting out, that's really all you can bank on, being able to build genuine connections so somebody else can speak on your behalf. How do you know when you're ready to start applying for jobs? Because as a new developer, it's not always the easiest to like measure your own skill. Um, being rejected can be quite scary, actually. And so you want to feel reasonably confident that you at least aren't wasting people's time. What's your kind of take on it, Jermaine? I think you should start applying for jobs as soon as possible, even when you're not 
comfortable when you're not ready. The reason being is that you need to get some data in there. You, you need to get some data points so you can make some proper decisions with regards to what is not working. The worst thing is to not get started because you just have nothing tangible to go on. But at the very least, you know, you start applying, you can start identifying patterns of what is and isn't working and strategies that you can kind of pivot to. If you start applying and you apply to 25 jobs and of those 25 jobs, none of them get back to you. You start asking yourself, what is the problem here? Maybe it's my resume. So you start experimenting with your resume, right? You know, maybe you, you add a couple more goals. Maybe you highlight your projects in a different way. Maybe you, you tweak the, the order of the information and you apply to 25 jobs again. And of those 25 jobs, five get back to you. Now you have a data point on what may or may not have been working. Maybe it might have been your resume. So you start tweaking your resume some more and, and from there and from that point. And the, the idea is you want to accumulate as much data as possible so that you're more informed about how you're going around your job, your job hunt, right? So it all comes down to like, okay, if it wasn't your resume, maybe you're getting the call of the interview, you're not getting past the interview. Maybe, maybe you need to work on your interview skills. You know, maybe you advance through the interview, you get to the finals, you can't close the deal. Maybe you need to understand how to talk to leadership better. Or maybe you're getting you're getting offers and the offers aren't the ballpark that you want. Maybe you need to take a, a better approach to how you negotiate salary. But you'll never get those data points. You'll never be able to ask those questions that move your journey forward unless you start the journey. I don't know if you've uh, caught wind of this, Jermaine, but I host a podcast called The Scrimba Podcast. Very, very creative name, I know. Where I speak to, <laughs> <laughs> where I speak to sort of successful Scrimba students. And there was this one girl named uh, Anne-Marie, whose story, I, I, I still think she's, I've not met many developers like her. She basically worked in customer service where she had quite short contracts, right? They were like three or six months. So she wasn't really a stranger to like applying to a bunch of jobs. I think that gave her a very interesting background coming into tech because she started to apply to coding jobs um, you know, having only been learning for a couple of months. And she kind of knew that, you know, she wasn't going to get a job or really get very far, but she also knew that she herself couldn't create the perfect learning path. Like if her goal was to get a job, the only person that could tell her if she was ready and if not, what to improve was a potential employer. So she literally applied to a bunch of local companies and with every rejection, she managed to get those data points like you describe. And then for example, you know, one, one person said, listen, we really like chatting to you, but the projects in your GitHub profile, they're using quite like outdated JavaScript. We would love to see you upgrade it to use modern and so you know she took action and did that and it was literally a few months later i think it only took her four or five months in total she managed to get like a very uh, entry-level job right because at the end of the day uh, some companies want to invest in people who are at the beginning because they show a lot of potential but this is true for many stories i think the thing that's super unique about Anne marie is that she had it, it takes so much confidence right like it, it's so brave to go and apply to jobs i think not knowing that knowing that you probably won't actually get the job and having the, the sort of confidence to ask them to tell you where your weak spots are. It's not the comfortable path, but it's definitely the most efficient. No, most definitely. Um, I've come to the belief and the ideology that it is discomfort that we should be pursuing. You know, discomfort is what makes us adapt and develop new skills. It's what molds our brains. You know, I talk to people all the time that tell me about uh, jobs they regret doing because the company was so toxic or that it wasn't a good fit. And I've, I've had those experiences myself. And I, I always go through like the same fundamental questions of like, let me guess, you realize that there wasn't a fit. And then you're like, you know what? Maybe it's just me 
and I just need to change and I just need to learn some skills. So you went, you made the effort to learn the skills and you still realize it wasn't a good fit. So you left, right? But you still have those skills, right? You still learned and developed and got yourself to a better place. So a lot of times we fall into the trap of allowing comfort to be aligned with right or correct. And that isn't the case when you think about it. All that's even in tech, right? Disruption, innovation, it all comes from people chasing uncomfortability and the unknown, right? Nothing new mm. was ever created by doing something old. So we got to step outside of our comfort zones in order to really change our lives. Because yes, while there is an inherent risk that you may have an unfortunate experience, I can guarantee you that you're going to learn some things about yourself that when you find yourself in a situation where everything is going your way, you become an unstoppable force. Yeah, man. Like, there's a, I love the quote, which is like, what lies outside of your comfort zone is opportunity. I think it's also true that when you're learning, you, you know, learning is most effective when it's effortful. Like when you're actually kind of scratching your head or your brain is swelling a bit, trying to figure it out. That's like a little bit like getting a pump in the gym, you know, like you're kind of working the muscle yeah. there, you're developing it. One of the key things for me is that I'm, I'm always big on stories. I, I've been a story guy my whole entire life. I read a report one time that validated this theory for me, where it said that the human brain digests and intakes data the best when it's performed, when it's when it's given in the form of a story. And the reason being is that a story makes us um, more or less engage with the empathetic, empathetic center of our brain. Um, and we're attaching emotion to the information. Therefore, not only are, is our brain being stimulated, but also our feelings, our heart. Right. And that makes the information more pivotal. That means that makes people find the information more relatable. So if you can tell a good story, you got me. That's how video games got me. That's how TV shows get me. And that's how uh, honestly, that's how sports got me. You know, I, I found the journey of Michael Jordan to be super inspiring, especially when it comes to just professional excellence and personal excellence and just working your ass to the bone to get where you want to go. Um, stories invigorate me. Stories capture everything there is about life. And I want you to think about your own stories. You know, I want you to think about the peaks and valleys. I want you to think about what made you who you are and what's giving you the perspective and the insight to really go out and how you view the world and how you act in the world. If you're going to be a developer, you know, what kind of story is your code going to tell about you? You know, what kind of projects do you want to work on? What kind of impact do you want to make on the world? And why is that? Do you want to work in fintech because you grew up in a family that where money was an issue and you never really had enough money? So you want to build tools where it's easier for people to get money? Is that your story? Is your story that, you know, you want to create uh, a way to protect the environment because when you grew up, your house was burned down in a forest fire because somebody was negligent when it came to climate change, right? Our story is what motivates us. Our story is what inspires our industry. And our story is what will get you through your interview. I mean, there's always going to be a few different job options and different circumstances. But if you can sort of tie your story to the job, it's almost like going to make the interview so much easier because you just have to really show up and be yourself. And generally people like to work with, like, I think the story makes you kind of more believable, if that makes sense. Like it makes you more, a more confident decision to sort of work with someone like yourself because you kind of understand the reasoning why, like there's no guessing anymore, like what their motive is. Like it's, it's a really legit reason. 
I've kind of collected a few questions from the chat. So Tom 1977 asked a great question. I'm going to save it for a second because it's a little bit longer. Jay Rumbawa asked, is a project section on a resume for a non-computer science degree student or, or applicants, I suppose, mandatory? So if you don't have a CS degree, should you really be adding a project section to your resume or is it optional, Jermaine? If you don't have any other relevant experience, then your project experience is going to be literally the only thing worthwhile on your resume for somebody looking for a developer. Resumes are basically a snapshot of what value you bring to an organization. The story that you always want to tell a company on an application is, this is the value that I can bring to your organization. And if you don't identify the relevant information, the, the stuff that they would value, they're going to pass on your resume for somebody who does. Raina Ross said that they recently started networking, trying to connect with people from companies they want to work with. This person asks, what would be the best way to get some connections with people who work at a company? The easiest way would be LinkedIn. It tells you exactly who works at the company. It tells you what they do and all that jazz. I think that LinkedIn, because it is the easiest, it is the simplest and the most mainstream way, it's also the platform that probably gets ignored the most. In terms of connecting with people, you, you kind of want to, this is why communities like Discord are really good. You kind of want to find them where their passion is in the communities that they're in, in the activities that they're doing, in the tools that they're building, whether it be GitHub, Discord, Slack channels, game forums. I always like to say like the best relationships are built on crossover of genuine interests. It doesn't have to be on like a tech side. It could be, like I said, on like a Game of Thrones side. But finding out like where these people are being themselves online, non-professionally, is a great way to do it. Twitter has connected me with more people that, and Twitter has done more for my career than LinkedIn has. One thing I kind of like heard as a potential strategy is like, if you are like applying to a job or if you're looking at a company in particular, it's kind of beneficial if they almost already know who you are before you walk well, join the Zoom call, I should say, nowadays. And there's a few ways to do that. Like if it's a specific industry, you could be creating a blog post and linking it to them or, or quoting some of the engineering team's work. Um, that's like a lot of effort, obviously, but it could be very rewarding. What do you think about sort of just connecting with people on LinkedIn and sort of liking their posts and, and sort of commenting on the things they're doing maybe a few weeks before you apply just as a way to maybe it's like a low effort type of way to become friends of mind for an employer or is it, is it just a waste of time? No, no, it's actually the, it's actually the proper way to use LinkedIn because LinkedIn is a social media platform. I have a friend who, and no one, you guys can't see me right now, but please know I am making the biggest, the biggest, the biggest air quotes I can when I say this. I have a friend who's a dating coach in input, big, big air quotes. Um, but one time he said to me that, if you're going to be messaging someone online, especially somebody that you're messaging out of the blue, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a very weird encounter because they don't know who you are. They've never engaged with you. But the smart thing to do is to kind of build up that rapport by being uh, top of mind for them, by liking their posts, by retweeting their posts, by engaging with their content. So that when you do go into like the, the more private messaging, you're not you're not a stranger, right? And in some cases, if they go and like do they, they do the back and forth with you, um, they know who you are already, right? Especially if you keep it respectful, especially if you even if you manage to even keep it playful, they know who you are, 
And the same goes for LinkedIn. Like a lot of people run a lot of opinion pieces and a lot of experience pieces, and they're just asking for somebody to talk to them and engage them about it, right? And if you do that multiple times uh, across different posts, somebody's going to recognize you. Like I, I make posts on LinkedIn all the time. I know people who, who like my posts repeatedly and reshare it. Like I, I, I'm aware of that. And if they hit me up, I'm more inclined to answer them because A, like I can always rely on their quote unquote support to get my, to broadcast what I'm posting out there. But also like, you know, this is somebody that clearly has something like similar interest as me and just a different perspective. You know, I want, I'm, I'm interested to learn a little bit more about them or even just check out what they're saying. You kind of warm up your cold intro when you do activities like that. I think like applying to a job can be quite intimidating when you think about sending a resume, getting in the door, nailing the interview, negotiation, getting started and that kind of thing. I think it's super, super helpful just to break it down step by step. And what we're talking about right here is just literally getting your foot in the door for like a quick phone call at the very least, but maybe even sort of putting your resume in, in a priority in a pile, right? Because someone can vouch for you or something. I, I think it comes down to like giving value, right? Like if you've given value to an to a person who's working at the company or the company itself, maybe in the case of open source, I'll give an example. Like there's a lot of companies that have SDKs on GitHub. So say you're applying for a job at Discord, um, you probably can't contribute to Discord for code because it's private, but they sometimes have like open source projects. You could literally make a documentation contribution if you're a new coder, or you could make a pull request or comments on an issue with some more clarity about a problem. There, There's loads of ways you can bring value to them in that respect. That's very tangible value, right? But obviously on LinkedIn, you could be um, just encouraging them, like being a cheerleader almost. I think the only the only thing to be cautious about there is like you can put forth all that great effort and it's a very positive thing, but you sort of have to be, um, you need to have the right skill set for the role, right? Like you could be the ultimate cheerleader and you might be a fantastic cheerleader, but if you if you don't have the sort of right skill set for that particular job, um, it just might be easier to filter you out earlier than later for everybody involved, right? And so, yeah, Side note, if you are very good at cheerleading people, maybe maybe developer relations and stuff like that could be could be a sort of good industry to, to sort of look at or a good sort of role within a company to look at. Um, but that sounds awesome to me, Jermaine, thank you. I, I have another question from, so this is from Tom1977. I wanted to read it so I could sort of put it to you as eloquently as I can. Basically, Tom has been doing a bit of a side hustle for the last few years, contributing code to websites for some local charities. He feels as though his contributions to that project are quite basic, but if a recruiter was to sort of look at the charity's website, they might get the wrong impression, and Tom feels like they might think that Tom contributed more than he did, or, or contributed something very complex when he didn't. And I think Tom's concern is that he doesn't want to appear more sort of experienced than he is, because going into a company as a new developer, you want to be teachable and you don't want people to have like the wrong expectation of you because that's a recipe for disaster. And so Tom is kind of wondering like how he could position that to an employer on his resume. But I suppose another kind of question threaded in there is like, is it dangerous to like overrepresent yourself in this way? Or should Tom just be like, 
proud that he contributed to it even peacock a little bit like sometimes when you're like i mean again i'm making a silly analogy but when you make a dating profile or something you pick your best pictures like a lot of people are picking pictures that look a little bit better than themselves and then once they meet you like obviously your personality carries you through i'm wondering if tom could consider something like that sort of not misrepresenting himself but you know showing off the work and then when he gets in the door he can explain his contributions in more detail they might realize that you know tom wasn't the main person i don't know the details but they might realize tom's contribution is a little bit less than it could be but there's no reason they couldn't be impressed tom still got his foot in the door i think one of the main things is that you always want to just be as truthful and accurate as possible so there is a way for you to say to you for you to like emphasize just how important or how big or complex a project is while still giving yourself accurate credit and i think the words like contributed is a key operator and qualifier there there's a difference from seeing you contributed to the building of a product versus you designed and oversaw the development of a product. The language is is really is really key there, even though it may be subtle. So I would encourage Tom to, without worrying too much about censoring himself, you know, write out those key points in his resume. And then from there, you know, go through them and, you know, make sure that he feels comfortable speaking to what is on the resume. And if he feels like, you know, somebody might ask me a question about, you know, the architecture of this, when I really just did like the front end stuff, then that, that, that's your, there's where you kind of make the adjustment and the qualifier that you contributed via like front end developments instead of saying the whole architecture of it. But there is a there is a balance and as long as you are using qualifiers you'll be fine sounds great i think if tom is the kind of person to like ask that kind of question they're probably probably gonna sort of put it forth in like a legit authentic way so best of luck to you tom that's a great question thank you let's see what do we have next frederick asks if you have any advice for landing jobs for remote work these days like does the interview process um vary compared to the normal the not does the interview process for a remote job look different from an interview for a for a normal job and what kind of things should frederick keep in mind i guess i would say not really anymore last year year and a half has kind of really changed how we approach like job interviews a lot of things are like zoom related now you find that Everything is pretty much the same, except, you know, you now only have to worry about a three minute commute from your bathroom or your bedroom, you know, to your your camera. I would always just encourage that you still focus. You, you make sure that, A, you're set up in an environment where where you won't have to worry about like interruptions or distractions. And B, that you make sure from like uh, a technical a tech standpoint, like all your, your stuff is charged, your, your lighting is proper. Um, and that you're just in a position to really succeed. But like, yeah, we still treat the interview as if you were going on site, still dress for the occasion, um, <laughs> still present yourself in the best way possible, um, still be prepared to go online like a couple minutes before your call time. But you know what, man, like I think you've, you know, you said that it's not that different, but then you, I feel like you went on to describe some really astute points about how it is just a little bit different in the you know, obviously they're going to evaluate your ability to work remotely. 
And if you, if you're, I mean, I'm just, this isn't, this shouldn't be a factor, but I'm sure there's a degree of prejudice. Like if you're sort of sitting on the ground and you don't have a workstation at all, maybe that doesn't look great. Like compared to somebody who looks like they're ready to go, or if your AirPods or your battery is dying in between, it's just a simple thing to remember to sort of charge them. Uh, wish I had your advice before this session started, Jermaine, because my AirPods died. It can happen to anybody. Um, but sort of just being extra prepared is going to mean that it goes more smooth and, yeah, I, I suppose, I mean, I wouldn't mind digging into that point slightly because I think on one hand, somebody might prefer to see that you have experience working from home and you have a setup working from home. But I also accept that that's not a very like good prejudice. If anything, it shouldn't stop someone from getting a role. And many employers are giving people sort of stipid ends to like get a good desk and a chair and stuff like that if it's their first remote job. Could you talk about it a little bit? If you were to kind of do a... Uh, an interview for a remote job and your environment looked very uncomfortable and like you couldn't be productive in it and you just were struggling a little bit um do you think that'd be a negative indicator to an employer compared to if you have like a desk and a webcam and you know decent lighting and because to be honest like if you're working remotely nobody wants to it's so annoying when the microphone quality is bad for example and you can't communicate clearly so if your microphone isn't good during the interview that might sort of bias someone against you unnecessarily i would say that unfortunately those things do have an impact in that sense what i would do is i would just use the excuse of technology to my benefit say so you know my internet is is being chippy and i would i would i would literally just take the camera off I would even, you could even say, you know, if you if you feel comfortable enough, just tell them, like, right now I'm not comfortable going on camera, if that's okay. People will be respectful of that. But, yeah, I, I would honestly just, I just make an excuse that, like, you know, right now my internet's kind of choppy, so I have to do this over audio, if that's okay. Lily asked, what do recruiters expect to see in a profile for a junior web developer? Really, they're looking for scope of project, but also they're looking for signals that you're, that you're willing to learn, honestly, and that you're passionate about what you're working on. But like, really, it's going to come down to like your projects and just how complicated or interesting the projects themselves are. Uh, but this is really where I got to emphasize having that advocate again. This is where that person would come into play and be able to more or less uh, kind of steer you and guide the ship um, and kind of just speak on your behalf and your experiences like and why you'd be a, a strong contribution to the team, not only for the present, but also for the future. So like those signals about somebody being a strong learner w would be a key one. Ma Maud, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, asks, can I apply to jobs that require framework X when I only know framework Y? So maybe they know uh, React.js, which is a, a web framework, but they but the job is asking for AngularJS. And so they don't quite meet the requirement, but there's some transferable skills there. I, I don't think, I, especially if you're a junior, I, I, think, I think you should still go for it. Um, everybody knows that when you are hiring for a junior, you're hiring for potential. And yes, of course, like, present skills also matter and, and have an impact there, but you're really hiring for, for potential. And so there is a learning curve that's there. As long as, like I said, the signals of this person's a strong or a fast learner, this person can, can get the job done or there, you'll be good. You'll have a shot. So Deb, 
said that they are in college but trying to make it through to get a job, preferably remote. Hopefully some of the tips here are useful to you, Vendab. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, Deb wrote that they are on a target to get hired within three months, so just wanted to say good luck on that. I, I think the question, I don't quite understand it, Deb. Um, she, she asked or they asked if there is any scope for an entry-level remote front-end dev job. My, my best interpretation is like, is it possible for a junior dev to get a job? A remote job, yeah, a, remote, a remote job, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It most definitely is. A lot of the tech companies are, are hiring remote now. It has become a bit tricky because that connection and that personal brand piece and like is, is going to be a big, a big portion of it. But there are jobs aplenty. It's the unfortunate thing is I would say is that the, out of all the jobs, it's the junior jobs that are the most competitive. So it's all about just finding opportunities where you can show off your skills, build a niche, uh, build rapport, and and kind of, uh, again, like I said, keep pursuing being uncomfortable because that's a signal that you, you like to learn and you like to thrive. Sick. Rams Code asks, do recruiters really check out the portfolio website? Yes, we do. Especially when we see that the resume may be lacking, but there are some signals there that, suggest that somebody has a pretty good grasp of what we're looking for, we will check out the portfolio. In certain cases, we won't because if the resume is, if the resume is not giving me any signals, any inclination that this person is what I'm looking for and I'm hard pressed for time, we'll skip it. Mm. But like a portfolio is always important for you to have, especially as a junior developer. Just a quick fire question, gut instinct, what's more important to spend energy on, your portfolio or your resume? Mm. Your portfolio, I would say, because you can link your portfolio to your LinkedIn and you can create a PDF of your LinkedIn profile as a resume. So I would say your portfolio. Mohammed asks, from the point of view of a senior recruiter, what are the absolutely essential things that a person learning to code should have in their resume? And if you don't have them, you, you're, you're in trouble, basically. I mean, probably your email is, is something you'll be in a lot of trouble if you don't have, so they can't get in touch with you. But what else could be, what else is really important for people to include? Uh, your email, your LinkedIn, your portfolio, any any anything relevant, you know, whether it be blog posts about the subject matter that the company is, uh, the company is is working on. You know, if you if you're going for a clean tech company, maybe a blog post that you did on like environmental damages might be a good thing to, to reference. Um, but like, I, I got to emphasize relevant information, relevant experience. If you're going for a software engineer role, having a resume that's mostly focused on your customer service job and a retail store isn't the best way to go. My pants said that they, as <laughs> a funny username, said that they have a great resume and great skills and experience. Their resume is two pages. They say that it's clean with sections, um, but they're wondering if two pages is truly too much. I, I've heard, like, I used to, I heard, and I kind of just subscribed to it because it sounded right. They're like, yeah, one page is the absolute, um, is the absolute most the resume should be, especially if you haven't been in the industry for like three or four decades, like a page is all you need. But I've also seen people say that like a resume is as long as it needs to be, right? Yeah, I think it comes down to like just what you, what kind of experience that you have and what you've been working on. I think anybody under five years of experience, relevant experience, should only have a one-page resume. I only have a one-page, well, no, I have, I have a two-page resume now at this point, but it kind of comes down to how much relevant experience that you have, right? More or less, I like to do like the five-year rule. Like if you have if you have five years or less, one page. Five years or more, two pages. Well, five plus two pages. And that's like, that goes to me 
will eternity because nobody wants to be reading a three, four, five page resume. So the other thing that this person wrote that I wanted to ask you about separately is they wrote, I understand it's a snapshot and run through an algorithm, then glanced at by HR slash recruiting. What is this algorithm that my pants is probably referring to? I think he's, it's not really an algorithm, but it's this, um, it, it's this idea that a lot of CRM systems or I, I should say HR systems have like an auto reject feature. If, if your resume, it doesn't have enough keywords in it. You'll never know whether or not they use it. They're to me, in my experience, they're pretty rare and expensive. So I, I wouldn't stress it out too, too much. Just focus more on like, again, getting your resume in there, uh, send it always as a PDF. Yeah, I've heard like that the, so what you're describing an application tracking system. There like, you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> some recruiters and, and some, you know, coders behind these products, like they've actually come out and said that people are blowing it way out of proportion. Like there are some fields, right, that are called like auto reject fields. So if they post the job and they have a checkbox which says, for example, I have the legal right to work in this country, if you don't take that, then your resume probably won't reach a recruiter because it's a non-starter. But in terms of like filtering keywords and stuff like that, um, honestly, I've heard that it doesn't even exist. <laughs> like, I don't know, if I've, like we sort of looked at some application tracking systems and none of them even had that feature. Is there one in particular you're thinking of that's like really expensive and does that kind of stuff? Um, honestly, no, I, I actually don't know. Like a lot of the companies that I've worked for, a lot of the companies that I've, I've applied to, they don't really use the, the auto reject and the ATS um, a lot of people have also revealed that there's a lot of biases involved mm. in terms of like name biases. So a lot of companies for like uh, legal exposure don't like relying on them. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Abraham has a good question and it might be a good one to end on. Abraham asks, should I lie about my salary when recruiters ask and I'm applying yes. to a higher salaried position, almost double my current? Yes, I, I, I 100% uh, I am on board for this. Listen, you got to pay what the market's willing to pay, right? If you make 50 grand and somebody said, oh my God, this guy has a skill set that would make me pay 100 grand, you take the money. And the reason why you take the money is because if they believe that they can pay you 100 grand and it'd be worthwhile, it means they're making 500 grand off you. So take the money. <laughs> That's an amazing point because like a lot of people who are, maybe they're working as like a part-time shopkeeper or something, just a random example, the salary is not going to compare to tech and all the company's trying to do is like anchor you basically and get you for cheaper. You don't have to play that game, right? Like they're inviting you to play. You can, oh, you no. can, you can play and tell them a lie or like not, not, well, basically it's a lie. Yeah. No, tell, <laughs> tell them what you're targeting. Nobody, nobody needs to know what you're making currently. You tell them what you're targeting um, for the role. And if they're willing to pay it, they're willing to pay it. If they're not, you're, you're going to somewhere else. There is a story about um, a janitor being the reason why we have flaming Hot Cheetos and flaming Hot Chip flavors, you know, because he experimented at home, right? And that was a huge boon for, like, the Cheeto manufacturer. But I promise you, if they knew what they had on their hands and – he was somebody applying, they would have, they, he would not have a janitor salary. They would have given the eventual promotion that they ended up giving him. Crazy. Uh, so you always go by what the market is, is willing to pay. It used to be that when somebody graduated from uh, a computer science with a computer science degree, 
that you know they could expect like an 80 you know, nail like a well like a like a 60 70k job the market got so crazy that now you know in some places when you graduate from from with a and i know what i said about computer science degree but just bear with me but like if you graduated from certain schools google will like for instance um waterloo here in canada you know google will try to be competitive and hire a bunch of people out of that platform or people that work with people out of that platform and if Google's interested, Facebook's interested, Facebook's interested, Uber's interested, and everybody's just interested. But all of a sudden, you start seeing new people that are coming from new programs. Now you have to be school. Sometimes with boot camp programs, because boot camp programs have that respectability, you, people are, are walking to their first tech jobs with 80, 90, 100K salaries. So, like, you pay what the market offers you. We have to wrap up in a second just because they're out. We're out of time, but I'm wondering if you have any resources people can read. I'll be honest with you, Jermaine. Like, I spend way too much time on TikTok, and there's a whole like subcategory of TikTok from recruiters showing people in tech how to get jobs, and they do these little parodies about how to respond to questions like, "Oh, what are your salary expectations?" or "What do you make right now?" and and the response is typically something like, "Oh, I think my expectation is in line with your with the market rate," and you know stuff like this. But I'm not really about to link people to TikTok to read more. <laughs> like, is there anything you can yeah. share, Jermaine? <laughs> Uh, you know what? I, I, I'm I'm gonna send the if you don't mind, mind Alec. I'm gonna send you the link. Um, it's a bit dated, but back in 2020, I did I did self-publish a salary guide um, that talked about at the time what the salary was across major Canadian, U.S., U.K. markets. Um, but there's also a bit of a tidbit on how to negotiate for salary in there, um, and how to position yourself and how to gain that confidence. So, oh, very good. Um, I'll share that link with you. You can share it with the. Let's, let's post it. And, uh, yeah, can we post it quickly in the text chat so people who are around now yeah. can maybe bookmark it or open it in a tab or something? Just while you pull that up, Jermaine, I'll close out quickly when I say thank you so much, everybody. If you were there when you said hello to Jermaine, please also say thank you. We're very thankful for your time, Jermaine, joining us today and sharing your knowledge. No Thanks a lot, Jermaine. And I hope to see everybody at another fireside soon. Uh, and you too, Jermaine. Like, it's always great when you join us. We really appreciate it. So hope to speak to you soon on another event. Thank you for having me. All the best to you, everyone. Anytime, man. Bye, everybody.